Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Monday edition of the Georgine Rice Show, seven minutes after four o'clock. Clark Hilton is engineering today's program. James Blend is producing. Today we'll talk with Dave Williams. He's Taxpayers Protection Alliance president. We're going to talk about the United States Postal Service. Looks like they're going to ask for another taxpayer bailout. We'll take a look at what's happening there. We're also going to talk with Craig Johnson. He's a father, a pastor, and author of Champion, How One Boy's Miraculous Journey Through Autism is Changing the World. And if you uh, have uh, autistic uh, members of your congregation, members of your family, you're going to want to listen in. He's established a new ministry that's making a pretty big difference all around the world, just as the subtitle of the book would suggest. Well, the FBI raided President Trump's personal attorney, Michael Cohen's home, office and hotel room today to seize a collection of documents, a development that Trump slammed as a disgrace just moments ago. Federal agents reportedly obtained documents related to several issues, including his payments to adult film star Stormy Daniels in the weeks leading up to the 2016 presidential election. The New York Times was first to report the raid. Today, the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Southern District of New York executed a series of search warrants and seized the privilege communications between my client, Michael Cohen, and his clients. Cohen's attorney, Stephen Ryan, said in a statement earlier today, I've been advised by federal prosecutors that the New York action is in part a referral by the Office of Special Counsel Robert Mueller. Now, some are suggesting either he has evidence of collusion or the FBI and this investigation has spiraled out of control. Well, Trump lashed out Monday evening. That's what time it is in Washington, calling his investigation a total witch hunt and an attack on our country in a true sense. Well, if the uh, course of his or her investigation, the special counsel concludes that additional jurisdiction beyond that specified in his or her original jurisdiction is necessary in order to fully investigate and resolve the matters assigned or to investigate news matters uh, that come to light in the court of his or her investigation, he or she shall consult with the attorney general who will determine whether to include the additional matters within the special counsel's jurisdiction or assign them elsewhere. That's what the code reads. Uh, That's um, the uh, U.S. Code of Federal Regulations. Well, that elsewhere in this case could be referring to the U.S. Attorney's Office in the Southern District of New York, a spokesperson for the uh, USDNY uh, declined comment to clarify the decision by the U.S. Attorney's Office in New York to conduct their investigation using search warrants is completely inappropriate and unnecessary, Ryan uh, said in a statement. It resulted in the unnecessary seizure of protected attorney-client communication between a lawyer and his clients. Ryan added, these government tactics are also wrong because Mr. Cohen has cooperated completely with the government entities, including providing thousands of non-privileged documents to the Congress and sitting for depositions under oath. Well, Daniels and her attorney uh, have uh, pushed for depositions from the president and Cohen, saying Mr. Cohen has been placed in the crosshairs by Mr. Trump, uh, her attorney uh, said, speaking uh, earlier today, he's been set up to take the fall. An enormous amount of misplaced faith has been placed on his shoulders, and I do not believe he has the metal to withstand it, end quote. He went on to say, if I am correct, this could end very, very badly for Mr. Trump and others. Again, this is Stormy, a quote from Stormy Daniels' attorney, Michael Av- Avenatti. 
Well, Cohen uh, had been living in a hotel while some repairs were being done on his apartment. Two White House officials said uh, earlier today that the president was watching cable news when reports broke that the FBI had raided Cohen's office. It's unclear at that point, though, whether the president had spoken to his attorney. Well, last week, uh, President Trump was asked by reporters during a gaggle at the Air Force One whether he knew about Cohen's $130,000 payment to Daniels. The president responded, no. When asked why Cohen made the payment, Trump said, you have to ask Michael Cohen. Michael's my attorney. Well, Trump also said that he did not know where Cohen got the $130,000 to pay Daniels in the days before the election. And this uh, would not uh, go to this central subject of the ongoing investigation, the Mueller investigation, but it certainly would not look well for uh, the president or then candidate Donald Trump. Meanwhile, today, uh, the president uh, called the suspected chemical attack in Syria over the weekend atrocious and atrocious rather. And the United States will make major decisions about its response over the next 24 to 48 hours. It was an atrocious attack. It was horrible. The president said during a cabinet meeting at the White House, he added, we are studying that situation extremely closely. We are meeting with our military and everybody else, and we'll be making some major decisions over the next 24 to 48 hours. Well, Saturday's suspension. Suspected poison gas attack took place in a rebel-held town near Damascus amid a resumed offensive by Syrian government forces after the collapse of a truce. Syrian activists, rescuers, and medics said the attack in um, uh, Dauma killed at least 40 people with families found suffocating in their houses and in shelters. We're talking about humanity, Trump said, and it can't be allowed to happen. We'll be looking at it, uh, that barbaric act and studying what's going on. As Trump considered U.S. options in Syria, Defense Secretary Jim Mattis said today, uh, rather took aim at Russia for what he suggested was its failure to ensure the elimination of Syria's chemical weapons arsenal. The Pentagon chief said that he would not rule out a U.S. military strike against Syria in response to a suspected poison gas. The president planned two meetings with senior national security aides on Syria today, in addition to a previously scheduled late afternoon White House conference with leaders of U.S. military commands around the world. Today was the first day on the job for Trump's new national security advisor, John Bolton, who has previously advocated military action against Syria. Well, the White House uh, deliberations came as Russia and the Syrian military blamed Israel for the pre-dawn missile attack on a major air base in central Syria, saying Israeli fighter jets launched the missiles from Lebanon's airspace. A group that monitors Syria's civil war said the airstrikes killed 14, including Iranians active in Syria. Over the weekend, the president threatened a big price to pay for the suspected poison gas attack on Saturday there that killed at least 40 people, including children. The government of President Bashar Assad has denied using poison gas, but the evidence is everywhere. In fact, Nikki Haley, who is the U.N. ambassador for the United States, spoke eloquently on the United States response. And here are her words in response to those events. We are beyond showing pictures of dead babies. We are beyond appeals to conscience. We have reached the moment when the world must see justice done. History will record this as the moment when the Security Council either discharged its duty or demonstrated its utter and complete failure to protect the people of Syria. Either way, the United States will respond. John Bolton was one of a handful of hawks who led the Bush administration's charge into Afghanistan and Iraq. Conflicts there still going on as Bolton returns to center stage after a decade in the political wilderness. 
essentially. His first day at work as uh, the Trump National Security Advisor focused on a new front and the question of how to punish the Syrian regime and its backers for the alleged use of poison gas again against a rebel-held enclave in the eastern Damascus suburbs. Well, Bolton has been a consistent advocate for the use of U.S. military force. Um, uh, might throughout his career as a lawyer turned foreign policy ad- activist and his presence at uh, Trump's side is widely expected to echo Trump's instincts demonstrated um, in April of last year to respond with airstrikes to a mass casualty use of chemical weapons. Bolton certainly doesn't shy away from the use of military force. Julianne Smith, a senior member of the Obama National Security Council and now director of the Transatlantic Security Program at the Center for a New American Security, The question is, how much does he want to push the president down a path where you're going to get into an escalatory, I'm not sure that's a word, but an escalatory tit for tat with Syria, Russia and Iran? Meanwhile, President Trump pointed out that if, in fact, Obama had responded as he promised to the the bright line uh, that he suggested uh, the Assad regime crossing would result in some sort of response, we wouldn't be in this position today. And what we respond, uh, how we respond, rather, Uh, The president once again said would uh, be revealed within the next 24 to 48 hours. We'll continue to follow that story. 16 minutes after four o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 21 minutes after four o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. In our next hour, we're going to talk with Dave Williams. He's the president of Taxpayer Protection Alliance. We'll talk about the United States Postal Service and what can be done, what will be done, what are members of Congress and leadership at uh, the United States Postal Service willing to do uh, to keep the Postal Service working or make necessary adjustments. We're also going to talk with uh, Craig Johnson. He's a pastor, he's a father, and he's the author of Champion, How One Boy's Miraculous Journey Through Autism is Changing the World. That's coming up in the 5 o'clock hour. Well, it's most probable that the average person would reject the offer to provide thousands of businesses, organizations, or interests with multiple uh, sources of information, minute-by-minute feedback on purchases, personal interests and habits, daily movements, civic engagement, or even details about their travel, their family, health, and voting. Yet those who engage in social media are revealing by the recent data woes of Facebook are consenting to just that. Consumers enjoy using Facebook to connect with friends and family or the ease of entering a search item into Google's platform to easily access information. But those actions simultaneously trigger a cascade of activity to create a digital profile of you and your interests. Your browsing history, the time you spend on certain website pages and the type of content accessed are very valuable data points for retailers and political organizations in efforts to win spending and um, your votes. Simply put, you are the product being sought by marketers to add to their data sets for the purpose of any number of transactions and sales. This week, Facebook founder Mark Zuckerberg is set to appear before Congress. Americans have been made aware that an estimated 87 million users have had their personal data scraped, as they put it, or used without permission and outside the terms of use of Facebook's user agreement. And Facebook acknowledged last week that it's likely most of its 2 billion worldwide users have had data collected by malicious actors. 
We don't even know who they are. Well, this latest flap isn't the first time the social media giant has been less than careful about the private information of its users, you know, you and me. And it's not the first time it's been disciplined for its failure to live up to its user agreements. You might recall in 2011, an eight-count complaint was issued by the Federal Trade Commission against the social media behemoth. The charges, as described on the FTC website, claim that Facebook deceived consumers by telling them they could keep their information on Facebook privately and then repeatedly allowing it to be shared and made public. In response to the FTC claim the Facebook violated federal law, a settlement was reached that the social media company would take several steps to make sure it lives up to its promises in the future. That would include giving consumers clear and prominent notice and obtaining consumers' express consent before their information is shared beyond the privacy settings they are have established. Of course, in 20. 20- 12, the, uh, when Obama, uh, Barack Obama's political machine organizing for action was using personal data harvested from Facebook users to micro-target voters with messages that were personal and matched their interests, the headlines trumpeted the genius of the plan. Not only did the information captured and utilized by Obama's data-savvy campaign relate to those who were personally interested in his re-election, but personal data about their friends was obtained and used as well. Well, tomorrow, when Zuckerberg faces congressional questions, will Americans see their representative body of government fight for their privacy or will lawmakers spout partisan talking points to protect their own? Will Facebook, as is um, being predicted, face record fines that could exceed one billion dollars for violating the terms of the 2011 consent decree to address the misuse of data? It's an election year, and it's pretty safe to say that soaring speeches of indignation during the hearing on Tuesday will consume most of the allotted time. There's already been an early indication that the largest social media platform company in the world would rather keep its lengthy user agreement written by a slew of attorneys than force Facebook users to either purchase some type of subscription service to opt out of the data sweeping or know how to manipulate settings to circumvent the existing structure. Cheryl Sandberg, Facebook's COO, offered in a NBC interview last week, we have different, and I'm quoting, we have different forms of opt out. We don't have an opt out at the highest level. That would be a paid for product. Maddening. Your data is not yours. Facebook's assumption is that once a consumer engage, engages, rather, users abandon all rights to their personal information that may be linked to an Internet address and the content posted in messages that are believed to be private. The issue of our day is actually about the um, democratization of our data. Who owns it? How should interested parties access our personal data? Should we charge those who are seeking our data rather than pay to have our privacy protected? Well, stay focused on the true issue involved in this Facebook regulatory situation. Consumers in a surveillance economy need to be protected, not merely exist as a product, which is essentially what we are today. Well, there is an old adage in technology that if you are not paying for it, you are the product. And for Facebook and its massive user base, that rings fairly true with some eye-opening results depending upon where you live. Facebook's most valuable users are in the U.S. and Canada. They generate about uh, $26.76 in average revenue per user in the fourth quarter of 2017. $26.26 of that from advertising for all all of 2017, the average user in the U.S. and Canada generated $84.41 in, uh, uh, in revenue, $81.92 uh, cents of which came from advertising, making the region uh, Facebook's most valuable 
uh, source on a revenue basis. As of the fourth quarter, Facebook said it had 184 million monthly active users in the U.S. and Canada, a decline of 1 million monthly active users from the previous quarter. In total, Facebook has over 2 billion monthly active users. Now, if you do the math, you can see this is a uh, Pretty lucrative. Other regions of the world are not as uh, lucrative for Facebook, due in large uh, part to the developing nature of the online advertising world, but they are still quite valuable to Mark Zuckerberg's led company. In some cases, the growth rate is uh, outpacing uh, that seen in the United States and in Canada. In 2017, the average revenue per European user for Facebook was about $27.41. That's less than half the $84.41 from U.S. and Canadian users. In the Asian Pacific region, where Facebook is legally banned from China, it generated $8.92 rather in average revenue per user in 2017. Of the $40.65 billion in revenue Facebook generated in 2017, $39 billion of that came from advertising, with the remaining $711 million coming from payments. So it'll be interesting to hear what's uh, said uh, during these uh, hearings that are uh, that begin tomorrow on uh, Capitol Hill. Meanwhile, Facebook is reconsidering classifying videos produced by Diamond and Silk, two of President Trump's most ardent supporters, as unsafe to the community after the dynamic duo went on Fox News morning show asking why the embattled social media giant had labeled them as such. In a statement to Fox News, a Facebook spokesperson said, we are aware of this issue. We are reaching out to the creators of Diamond and Silk, two black women who are supporters of Trump, to try to resolve the matter. Well, after being deemed unsafe to the community by Facebook's public policy team, Lynette Diamond Hardaway and Rochelle Silk Richardson went on Fox and Friends and said that they were provided with no reason why their videos were labeled as unsafe. They gave us no rationale, the sisters said on Sunday. The only thing they told us is that we were unsafe for the community. We are two women of color. How are we unsafe? We don't sell drugs. We don't belong to no gangs. It's offensive. It's appalling. It uh, taints our brand. Why are we? Uh, why are you censoring two black women? We are, uh, or rather, why are you not allowing our viewers to view our content? They asked on the uh, program. Well, the social media stars added that the labeling started seven months ago when they noticed that there were uh, there was a pause on their, their page. One day we were doing good, and then it was dropping. People were not receiving notifications. Our posts were not showing up on their feeds. They also noted that through uh, face though Facebook is a private entity, they are open to the public. The two outspoken commentators, who are sisters, describe themselves as biological sisters from North Carolina standing with the silent majority and President Trump's most outspoken and loyal supporters. Um, when originally reached for comment and um, uh, asked why the videos from the duo were labeled as unsafe to the community, a Facebook spokesperson rather said that the company's policy team had concerns about their online rhetoric and deemed them as unsafe. The rhetoric is essentially supporting President Trump, and that may be sufficient to uh, warrant the label placed on them, but we're being told that's now being reconsidered. We'll continue to follow the story. 30 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 35 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, the head of the powerful government agency wants Congress to take action and to 
shrink the organization. The action he wants may come as something of a surprise. The Office of Management and Budget Director Mick Mulvaney, who's also the Trump appointee director of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, wants Congress to reduce that agency's power and make it more accountable. That's not a a mistake. Call it draining the swamp or whatever you like. But clearly there's a paradigm shift taking place in Washington. But could the federal agency that's only been around since 2010 really be out of touch with its mission? Recently, Mulvaney escorted a reporter through 2,660 square foot athletic facility with two huge locker rooms, offices with electric height adjustable workstations, a library with a sofa and lounge chairs, but a few uh, books, a uh, roof um, deck with spectacular views and motorized um, cantilevered umbrellas, and a courtyard with lavish fountains. The images recall the familiar spectacle of triumphant soldiers touring a deposed dictator's opulent palace, the reporter uh, wrote. Well, actually, those palatial digs belong to a modern-day bureaucracy, but it's not just the profligate spending that should worry Americans. The CFPB is an Obama-era creation, and it wields a tremendous degree of authority over American businesses and consumers. The Washington Post reported in 2016, and I quote, the director unilaterally enforces 19 federal consumer protection statutes uh, covering everything from home finance to student loans to credit cards to banking practices. The director alone decides what what rules to issues, how to enforce, when to enforce, and against whom to enforce the law, and what sanctions and penalties to impose on violators of the law. But Mulvaney recently asked Congress to make substantive changes to how the CFPB operates to require congressional approval for all major policy initiatives, changes to current policy and funding. His report to Congress also gives the president unilateral authority to remove the director of the CFPB for any reason. Change we can believe in, one wonders. Well, it's a bold move, and it reminds politicians that federal bureaucracies must be held accountable. Mulvaney suggested that structuring the bureaucracy in Uh, The way it has, Congress established an agency primed to ignore due process and abandon the rule of law in favor of bureaucratic fiat and administrative absolutism. Essentially, what Mulvaney is asking Congress to do is to ensure that the bureaucracy itself carries out its mission in the most efficient manner and in the interests of the American people. No government agency should be allowed to police itself, especially one that enjoys funding from the Federal Reserve and operates without having to answer to the very political body that created it. In reality, that's what uh, Elizabeth Warren and other, uh, other Democrats wanted when they created the agency. In 2010, they structured the CFPB with the belief that Democrats would rule the roost in D.C. for years to come. They gave the director broad, unchecked power because Democrats uh, wanted to regulate as opposed to the uh, the model we're seeing now. But a funny thing happened on the way to the uh, coronation of one candidate, and suddenly uh, the uh, in the inauguration of another. Uh, so the new director um, uh, didn't want to wield all of that power without accountability. Mulvaney lamented of his uh, own power, I am the judge, I am the jury, and I am the executioner, he said. And if you don't like it, talk to the person who wrote the statute. That person is Elizabeth Warren, who inspired the creation of the agency. But Warren isn't interested in changing the agency because doing so would create the very transparency and accountability that a federal agency should have. Well, making the changes that Mulvaney wants is not a done deal. Any revisions to the uh, structure of the agency 
agency or policies must come with congressional approval. And Democrats have vowed to stand in the way. Were Democrats to take back either congressional chamber this November, chances for reform would be slim. Mulvaney and Senator Warren will come face to face next week when the director of the CFPB goes to Capitol Hill to make his pitch in a rather unusual manner. Other critics of Mulvaney's approach include Mike Litt of the United States Public Interest Research Groups, an organization that ostensibly represents consumers. Litt said that uh, Mulvaney wants to take away the Bureau's independence and then make it harder for it to do its job. uh, Litt added recommendations in his report, if implemented, would stop the agency from protecting consumers and prevent it from doing its job. Actually, keeping the CFPB intact would continue to hurt consumers by eliminating competition, preventing Americans from accessing financial services, and if no charges are made, there's no telling what other schemes the CFPB will come up with in the name of consumer protection, unchecked, essentially. So let's hope that Mulvaney convinces Congress to reform the agency. In the end, American consumers and our political system would benefit the most, particularly because there would be accountability. And Warren's dream of government policy by fiat would be dealt a severe blow, at least until um, the uh, Democrats uh, take control uh, and regulate once again. We'll see what happens in November. Florida Republican Governor Rick Scott struck an anti-Washington tone as he announced plans today to run for the Senate against Democratic Senator Bill Nelson, setting up what could be one of the most highly watched races in the country. Some say as governor, I have never fit in or played by the political rules in Tallahassee, Scott said in a video releasing his uh, uh, released rather by his campaign. Well, that's true. And I never planned to fit in. Well, Scott, first elected governor in 2010, kicked off his campaign today during a morning event in Orlando, Florida. He called for enacting term limits in Congress, discussed how he uh, was raised in low income housing by a mother and stepfather who worked multiple jobs. I won't fit in in Washington either, Scott said. It's time to shake that place up. We don't need another politician in Washington. It's full of politicians, and that's why it's broken. Nelson, a longtime lawmaker, politician, uh, who famously went through NASA training and spent six days orbiting Earth aboard the uh, space shuttle, uh, Columbia, is the only statewide elected Democrat. I've always run every race like there's no tomorrow, regardless of my opponent, Nelson said on Monday. While it's clear that Rick Scott will say or do anything to get elected, I've always believed that if you wake up every day and if you try to do the right thing, the politics will take care of itself. I wish it was that simple, and unfortunately, it rarely works out that well. But President Trump urged Scott to seek that seat, including during public events in Florida, during a tour of storm damage during Hurricanes Irma in September. The president told reporters, I hope this man, Rick Scott, runs for the Senate. Well, apparently that's what that man right there is, in fact, going to do. Uh, Not only... um, Did Bill Nelson vote against the GOP tax cuts responsible for bigger paychecks? The National Republican Senate Committee Communications Director Katie Martin went on to say new job opportunities and higher wages. But Floridians now must worry about Nelson repealing their new economic benefits. So the campaign has begun in earnest as the announcement was made today. Uh, But the campaigning on his behalf began some days earlier. Also, former Attorney General Loretta Lynch, she claims she and former President Bill Clinton spoke of only innocuous things during their controversial meeting on a tarmac in Arizona just days before the FBI decided it would not recommend criminal charges against Hillary Clinton for her handling of classified information on her private email server 
in 2016. Well, during an exclusive interview to air on NBC this evening, Lynch addressed her chance encounter, in quotes, with Clinton on her plane in July of 2016 in Phoenix, telling NBC that the meeting was purely social. Lynch said she and Clinton only discussed innocuous things during their meeting and insisted that they did not discuss Hillary Clinton, who at the time was being investigated by the Justice Department and the FBI over her use of a private mail server during her tenure as Secretary of State. Lynch told NBC in the interview that the former president just told a long but charming story about his grandchildren, noting that the two also discussed issues of the day, such as Brexit. Lynch told NBC that the meeting turned into a much longer conversation than it should have because, you know, he's got one grandchild at the time. In the interview, Lynch acknowledged that her speaking to the former president raised concerns in people's minds about whether or not there was uh, going to be any impact on the email investigation. The tarmac meeting fueled Republican complaints that Lynch had improperly met with the husband of an investigation subject just days before the probe into her personal email server was completed with no charges filed. Former FBI Director James Comey also took issue with the meeting, testifying before the Senate committee that he saw the meeting as problematic. Well, Comey said the tarmac meeting was a deciding factor in his decision to act alone to update the public on the status of the Clinton probe. Comey had a, held rather a press conference to announce that he would not recommend any criminal charges and ultimately called her actions extremely careless. By the way, Comey has a book coming out. His tour is already booked, so we'll hear what he has to say in the days ahead. Anyway, the interview is airing on NBC tonight with Lester Holt. Also, will address uh, he will also address uh, Comey's testimony in uh, June of 2017 when he noted that Lynch directed him to refer to the Clinton email probe as a matter rather than an investigation. My first response was, what? Where is the issue here? I remember specifically talking with him, she says. As we talked about sensitive things on a number of occasions, Lynch told NBC, we often would uh, have to discuss sensitive matters, sensitive issues, terrorism and the like, law enforcement policy and the like. She added, this was a very sensitive investigation, as everyone knew, and the issue uh, when he and I sat down at that time, which I think was early in the fall of 2015, was whether or not we were ready to, as a department to confirm an investigation going on when we typically do not confirm or deny investigations until into anything with rare exceptions. So that interview will be aired tonight and the American people can draw their own conclusions. 45 minutes after four o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 51 minutes after four o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Mommy, are white people better than me? One black mom is pretty outraged after her son, age eight, was sent home with a pamphlet on white privilege. She's a North Carolina mother. She's outraged after her second grade son was sent home with a pamphlet on this subject. Amber Pabon says that she found the two-sided piece of paper detailing white privilege in her eight-year-old son's folder after he came home from Hunter Magnet Elementary School in in Raleigh, North Carolina, last month. The pamphlet explained how white people are overly represented in government, military, and the media, how that gives white people privilege not afforded to minorities. Now, the uh, the little eight-year-old black boy, he interprets that as 
uh, uh, different uh, outcome than was intended, one presumes. Well, what was most heartbreaking to his mother was how it affected her son's identity. She says that after he came home with uh, with a paper, he asked his mommy whether white people are better than him. She was outraged about the pamphlet because she thinks her son is too young to learn about systematic racism. She said, I think the message itself is inappropriate because, yes, there is racism out there and they need to learn about it. But let the parents do that. That was uh, what happened in my household. And believe you me, there were pr- plenty of opportunities and necessity for teaching on the subject as a little black girl growing up in southeast Portland. She uh, told in local news because, like I said, if she's teaching him the way she knows, it could be completely different from the way I know. Apparently the teacher was uh, Caucasian, the mother African-American. And me being part of the black community, I know different from how the white community sees it, she went on to say. While she insists that the white privilege was discussed in class, a school district spokeswoman says that it was not part of the curriculum and that the pamphlet was organized by the school's PTA. Multiple PTA members uh, said that the pamphlets were meant for parents, not for children. It's part of a larger initiative by the PTA's advocacy team, which started sending out related pamphlets in February during Black History Month. They say that parents have a right to opt out of receiving the materials. Uh, However, this was, in fact, given to the students. It was discussed in the classroom, and the misunderstanding impacted at least one little boy that we know of and possibly others. Mike Rowe, who's uh, the host of Dirty Jobs fame, has another show currently in its second season. It's called Returning the Favor, in which he highlights people who've committed themselves to making a positive difference in their communities. Well, in a recent episode, he visited Yuma, Arizona, where he met up with Carlos Flores. He's a former mixed martial artist, uh, arts fighter, rather. He created and runs a program where he works with children who've been bullied or are bullies themselves. Interesting, he works with both, training them to overcome the problem. Well, Flores um, has had success in helping youth through the program gain confidence and awareness of others. Now, he notes, um, Roe notes that an all too common factor in the lives of those most affected by bullying, both the victims and the perpetrators, a lack of a father in the home. Well, Roe shares the um, sobering statistics that 63% of youth suicides are from fatherless homes, five times the average. That's according to the U.S. Department of Health and Census. 90% of all homeless and runaway children are from fatherless homes, 32 times the average. 85% of all children who show behavior disorders come from fatherless homes, 20 times the average according to the Center for Disease Control. 80% of rapists with anger problems come from fatherless homes, 14 times the average according to Justice and behavior. 71% of all high school dropouts come from fatherless homes, nine times the average, according to National Principals Association report. And 43% of U.S. children live without their fathers, according to the U.S. Department of Census. And while uh, it's um, men have essentially been attacked uh, as insignificant in their households, uh, the statistics tell a different story. The role of fathers is significant, and as uh, uh, attempts to replace them with the state uh, have not been successful. Well, three decades of research has conclusively determined that children, perhaps especially boys, grow up most healthy and stable in a home with both mom and dad. In fact, it's not a stretch to argue that the majority of criminal and drug-related problems in society today can be traced back to broken homes. It's not the exclusive explanation. But it is a a consistent thread through much of it.
Well, the Justice Department announced that it is implementing a zero-tolerance policy for prosecuting those attempting to enter the U.S. illegally, the latest in a series of measures by the Trump administration to combat illegal immigration. The situation at our southwest border is unacceptable. That's a quote from the Attorney General. In a statement announcing the policy, Congress has failed to pass effective legislation that serves the national interest, that closes dangerous loopholes, and fully funds a wall along our southern border. As a result, a crisis has erupted at our southwest border that necessitates an escalated effort to prosecute those who choose to illegally enter the country by crossing the border. Well, the administration says the number of attempted border crossings has increased by 203 percent since March of 2017. In response, he signed a proclamation sending the National Guard to the border. He said he would like to see 2,000 to 4,000 members sent there. The latest move by the Justice Department orders U.S. attorneys along the border to adopt a policy of prosecuting all uh, referrals rather from DHS of illegal entry and attempted illegal entry into the country. It comes almost a year after Sessions issued a memo to federal prosecutors directing them to prioritize certain immigration offenses. Justice announced uh, announcement rather comes amid increasing criticism by the president of U.S. laws uh, for uh, the border, specifically the so-called catch and release. Our border laws are very weak, while those of Mexico and Canada are very strong, he tweeted. Congress must change these Obama era and other laws now all in caps with an exclamation mark. Um, We don't need, we don't have laws rather. We have catch and release. He went on to say you catch and then you immediately release and people come back years later for a court case, except they virtually never come back. In particular, Trump has um, was riled by media reports of a caravan of more than a thousand Central American migrants heading through Mexico toward the United States border. He threatened to end the North American Free Trade Agreement and cut aid to Honduras if the caravan was not stopped. He's also increased his calls for Congress to fund the wall on the southern border. It's not altogether clear what's happening with that caravan at this point. Last week, we were told that it broke into smaller groups attempting to enter at different uh, border points. Then we were told that it it broke up altogether and no attempts were being made. And now we're hearing other reports. So I suppose we'll have to wait and see what actually happens. But uh, the caravan has at least been rhetorically addressed and the uh, National Guard has been and is being sent to various border points. One of the least discussed parts of America's income tax is how progressive it is, and the tax overhaul didn't change that fact. In 2018, top earners will pay a higher share of income taxes, as is usually the case. The individual income matters a lot because it is the largest single source of U.S. revenue, and its share has risen in recent years. For 2018, it could uh, raise 50 percent of total federal revenue, according to estimates from Congress Joint Committee on Taxation, up from 48 percent last year year. So who pays what share of this tax? Well, IRS data aren't available until long after people file. And of course, we have until the 15th, or maybe it's a little later, depending on what day the 15th falls on. So estimates for 2017 and 28 come from the Tax Policy Center, a nonpartisan research group. They divided about 175 million American households into five income tiers of roughly 65 million people each. The income includes earnings from wages and investments, plus untaxed amounts, such as from 
health coverage. These additions nearly double the income of people in the lowest tier and add about 20 percent of those in the highest tier. The results show how steeply progressive the U.S. income tax remains. For 2018, households in the top 20 percent will pay uh, with an income of about $150,000 or more and 52 percent of total income about the same as 2017. But they will pay about 87 percent of income taxes. That's up from 84 percent last year. So um, 20 percent of uh, taxpayers will pay 87 percent of the income taxes collected. By contrast, the lower 60 percent of households who have income up to about $86,000 receive about 27 percent of income. As a group, this tier will pay no net federal income tax in 2018 versus 2 percent of it last year. After the income tax, the most important revenue raisers are for social insurance, such as Social Security and Medicare. They will provide about 34 percent of the total take a tax take this year, according to the Joint Committee on Taxation. Corporate taxes will amount uh, for 7 percent of revenue, down from 9 percent in 2017. And the rest of the total comes from excise taxes, estate and gift taxes and other sources such as customs duties. Well, the Tax Policy Center also offers a closer look at the income tax for those and the top quintile who earn anywhere from 150000 to $100 million and up. And it's interesting to consider how few pay how much of the overall taxes collected. We're at the top of the hour. News and traffic up next. When we return, we'll talk with Dave Williams with the Taxpayer Protection Alliance. He's the president. We're going to talk about the Postal Service and what's next. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Good afternoon and welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Well, in 2017, the United States Postal Service reported a net loss of $2.7 billion, and that, despite raising prices on stamps and flat rate boxes, their only proven revenue stream. Well, with net losses in 2016 and 2015 at $5.6 billion and $5.1 billion, respectively, it calls, um, calls for a taxpayer bailout. Uh, in the uh, United States Postal Service's future. Or the Postal Service um, uh, will get their uh, oversight agency, the Postal Regulatory Commission, to lift the cap on postal rates, dig out of its financial hole by spiking what consumers pay for services, not fixing the way they do their business. We're here to talk about what's happening with the United States Postal Service and what we might expect in the days ahead is Dave Williams. He's a Taxpayer Protection Alliance president, and I appreciate your joining us today. Welcome. Thank you for having me. And the post office is an absolute mess. Congress has really done nothing to help it out. So you have the post office, you have Congress that have done nothing, and you're right, and you mentioned the billions of dollars that the post office have lost, and it's just it, it's getting worse. And uh, there's just absolutely poor management at all levels. So why hasn't something been done? We've been talking about this for years, that the Postal Service isn't doing well, the rates keep being raised, but their, their management style, the way they do business has not been addressed. What prevents that from happening? Really, leadership, uh, leadership at the post office and leadership in Congress, but most notably at the post office, their board of governors, they don't have a full board of governors, so they don't have the oversight in place. And we're talking about saving billions of dollars in something as simple as ending Saturday delivery. I mean, we're talking 2 to $3 billion a year they could save if we didn't have Saturday delivery, but 
obviously things go much deeper than that. It goes to the pricing of packages, goes to first-class mail, goes to declining mail volume. So there are a lot of things that are happening at the post office that aren't good for taxpayers. And you mentioned, you know, the taxpayer bailout. Well, right now the post office is looking to be forgiven on their $15 billion loan from the Treasury. So mm. that is a direct taxpayer bailout if that happens. Well, let's just talk about the United States Postal Service and its relevance in the 21st century. Obviously, uh, there are lots of other options for sending packages hither and yon. But what about just basic mail? Is is the time of the U.S. Postal Service, the sentimental feeling we might have about it, has that come and gone? So I think the sentimental feeling will always be there. But I think the usefulness of the post office really is changing. Obviously, we have email. We have ways of paying bills online. So it's a lot different. So the landscape is a lot different as to how we communicate with each other. The post office has not changed. That's the problem is if you are a business, and I'm not going to say that the post office is a business, but if you are, you change with the times. The post office has not, and they've incurred this debt, and they're just looking the other way, and Congress is looking the other way. Well, if this was the private sector, then there would have been a downsizing and it would have adjusted, as you mentioned a few moments ago. What role does the uh, the union play in preventing that kind of um, best practices decision making about how the United States uh, Postal Service moves forward if it wants to survive? So the Postal Union is one of the strongest unions in this country. Uh, mainly for nostalgic reasons, because you don't want to take away the jobs of any postal carriers because they're your neighbor. They're the person that you see every day that delivers the mail. Uh, What they do is what the union does is ensure that they have great benefits and that nothing is ever taken away or downsized. So they're at the heart of the problem also. So what might we expect moving forward if you don't have uh, members of Congress who are willing to take this up, if you don't have leadership at the Postal Service, if you have a strong union that uh, that won't permit any kinds of adjustments that might uh, guarantee the longevity of the agency and make it more um, relevant to the 21st century, what do you propose is the, is the solution? And are you optimistic that we're even uh, close to anyone stepping up and moving toward that uh, that right decision? So believe it or not, the first thing has already happened, and that's the president calling them out and their deal with Amazon. Because mm-hmm. the post office subsidizes each Amazon package about $1.50 per package. So that's the first step is calling them out, calling out the Postal Service. Now, we need the next steps, and that is Congress to pass legislation, and they're considering legislation that, quite honestly, is awful. But they need real legislation to make sure that um, the post office does survive into the uh, you know, next 10, 20, 50 years. Um, but also, you know, there has to be a fundamental way of looking at the post office differently, whether it's privatizing, that should be on the table. But listen, you know, this isn't the same post office from 50 years ago. And Postal employees, postal leadership, they have to recognize that and they have to change with the times. Mm, again, are you optimistic that that's likely to happen uh, in the short term? So this year is going to be tough because it's an election year mm-hmm. and you don't want uh, members of Congress don't want to take anything away from people and taking Saturday delivery away will be problematic. But I think after this year, we could have real postal reform and that's not raising rates. That's really restructuring the uh, the agency and making sure that they have a board of governors. I can't stress that enough. It's almost like a board of directors for a company that they don't have anyone there. So there's no leadership, there's no original thinking, and bring in people that have worked in the private sector. So you can't just replace the Board of Governors with people, the you know old retreads from the government. Bring in private sector folks 
they can get the, uh, the, the House in order. Now, why hasn't that uh, oversight board been uh, populated? Is this a matter of Congress approving? Is it just overlooked? Why is there uh, a lack of personnel there and leadership? It's a laziness from the Postal Office and from uh, the Postal Regulatory Commission is that they have not put this as a priority, and Congress hasn't forced them to either. You know, Congress needs to take a role in this and and forcing them to come up with a board of governors and to come up with this leadership. So there was a lot of blame to go around, and unfortunately, taxpayers are the ones footing the bill while everyone points fingers at each other at the Postal Service. Well, this is a a growing problem, and uh, chances are, before any of the things that you've outlined uh, happen, the things that need to happen, is they're going to request from their regulatory commission that the cap be lifted on postal rates and uh, they'll be uh, dug out of their financial hole for another season and these same questions will uh, will be raised. Is there anything the average um, postal customer uh, can do to influence this movement in the right direction? Well, I think contact a member of Congress and demand that changes be made at the post office and that uh, you know Saturday deliver, delivery be on the table. We're not saying that that's just a, a gimme. They should do it, but put it on the table and look at the options that are available. And raising the cost of first-class mail, trying to bring in more revenue, that's not going to solve the problem because that means more people are going to go away from the post office mm-hmm. and use email and other ways of communicating. So that's not doing it. They first, And they need to make their agreements public. So the agreement they have with Amazon is shrouded in secrecy. And the post office, and we've heard this from whistleblowers inside the post office, saying that their supervisors have said, I don't care if you come back to the uh, – post office with first-class mail, you have to deliver every Amazon package or do not come back here. But, you know, you don't have to deliver first-class mail. You can do that the next day. So there is clearly a focus on uh, Amazon packages and the one area that is actually losing the money. Well, just really breathtaking. (laughs) The kinds of reforms that need to happen, what impact is that going to have on on personnel? Do you see uh, a downsizing, a significant downsizing of uh, letter carriers and those who support the uh, the letter carriers in the Postal Service? There will be a downsizing. And one of the uh, suggestions we have is our, our buyouts, is to buy out postal employees uh, you know, whether it's $25,000, $30,000, and that way, you know, they won't get future benefits because they've agreed to, to a buyout. But that's one way of downsizing. And really by attrition is that when people leave, don't rehire. Mm-hmm. Just mm-hmm. do this through attrition, and we probably won't notice the difference in service. Yeah, yeah. Well, Dave Williams, I appreciate you so much taking the time to talk with us. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you. Again, Dave Williams is Taxpayers Protection Alliance president, talking about the United States Postal Service that, as he mentioned, was called out by the president with regard to their relationship with Amazon. Up next, we're going to talk with Craig Johnson. He's the author of Champion, How One Boy's Miraculous Journey Through Autism is Changing the World. That one boy happens to be his son. That's next, right here on The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, unless you've experienced it, you can't truly understand the shock and the devastation. One minute your child is behaving one way and the next minute he doesn't seem like the same kid you've known his entire life. Well, until two years of age, Craig and Samantha's son, Connor, was just like other kids. He was playful and verbal. He was affectionate. Then everything changed. He stopped talking, he displayed behavioral problems, and he withdrew into his own world. The official diagnosis, autism. 
Well, faced with seemingly insurmountable odds, Craig and Samantha, they refused to believe a meaningful life for their son, Connor, was impossible. And God confirmed their faith by revealing to Craig that Connor would one day touch the lives of thousands of people around the world. Well, Craig and Samantha held that unlikely promise in their hearts during the agonizing years ahead. And Champion is a spellbinding chronicle of the twists and turns of Connor's journey, guided by his parents' steadfast hope in God's promises. And through the unexpected breaking of their spirits, love was poured out, culminating in a miracle that's launched a global ministry to the disabled. Well, Pastor Craig Johnson is the director of ministries at Lakewood Church in Houston, Texas. In 2009, he launched the Champions Club, a state-of-the-art facility for special needs kids that features a physical therapy room, spiritual therapy room, sensory room, and an educational room. He's the co-creator of Champions Curriculum for Special Needs Families and is the author of the book, Lead Vertically. He's married to Santa, and they have three children, Corey, Courtney, and of course, Connor. He joins us today to talk about this marvelous book simply titled Champion, How One Boy's Miraculous Journey Through Autism is Changing the World. Pastor Johnson, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's great to be on with you. Tell us a little bit about um, uh, Connor before the diagnosis. Yeah, you know, Connor was, as you said, just like the other two kids, and uh, he was our surprise. We had a 12-year-old and 10-year-old, and we thought uh, we had it all planned out, but God had for us, unrehearsed destiny. So he was our surprise uh, when we found out about him. And, um, you know, just like our other two kids, he would he would talk to us. He would play with other friends, uh, playmates when they come over. He would show up. And then um, all of a sudden, um, that just shifted. And so where at one time he would play with other friends, now he would go and sit by himself and uh, just play by himself, where he would give us a hug and a kiss. Um, now he showed no emotion and, and would look away, and where he would say, I love you, Mommy and Daddy, and say different words, uh, he stopped speaking altogether. And really the only way I can explain it was like a bad car wreck where one day, you know, your situation is one way, and the next day it's another. How did you first respond, and did you suspect that perhaps your son was autistic? You know, we didn't really know how to respond because we had never had a child, you know, in our family that had autism. And so um, we were like a lot of parents out there just trying to find answers. And when you first start out, what happens many times is, you know, mom's very maternal. So uh, that child becomes their mission. So they, they're on the computer. They're trying to find answers and solutions and different things like that. A dad, you know, he connects with his child in a lot of ways emotionally. So when all that stops, um, it's like a wall that gets put in between you and your child. And the mom, you know, looks at him as your mission. And so she doesn't understand why the dad's not responding the same way she is. And the dad's just trying to connect with his, with, with, with his child. And that's what we were trying to do. We were trying to navigate all that. And then we were trying to navigate the behaviors. We were trying to navigate what it meant to develop him in, in a school and uh, just everything that you face as a special needs parent. You made the statement that we decided early on that we were not going to let autism dictate Connor's destiny. Now, this is a diagnosis, and I suppose at the time uh, that the diagnosis is made, they give you some level of expectation as to his uh, level of development over time. But you decided autism was not going to dictate um, his destiny. How did you do that, and what did you base your hope on? Well, you know, what families like mine are looking for, especially, you know, during this time is, is we're just looking for hope. And we know what we're facing. We know 
what we deal with 24-7, but we're just looking for hope. And, you know, I, I, we, we found hope in different ways, whether it's through our church or whether it's through messages that we would hear. And I remember getting the diagnosis of my son, Connor. My wife called me, and she just got the diagnosis from Texas Children's Medical Center. And I remember hearing, when she told me it, I remember hearing his voices from the enemy just saying, your child's not going to be like the other children. Your child's going to be deficient. And all these just negative uh, things popping in my mind. I remember hitting the gas in my car, and I I drove up the driveway, and I ran upstairs to hold my two-year-old little son, and I just held him. I just Mm -hmm. spoke to him. I just said, you are not a victim. You're a victor. You can do all things to Christ who strengthens you. I said, you are more than an overcomer. And we just begin to speak those things to, into his life early on. And we believe that God was going to take him places that maybe we could have never gone if we didn't have him. What were you told to expect in Connor's life once that, that diagnosis was given? What limitations yeah, we were, did they tell you uh, to expect? Yeah, so when, when, when a child is on the middle of the spectrum, um, you know, you, you're going to have to expect that you're going to take care of him possibly the rest of his life. That's what they'll tell you, uh, that he's not going to have uh, conversations with you. If he's nonverbal, uh, there's a chance to, that he'll never speak. Um, you're going to hear a lot of different things. One of the scariest things for parents and hardest things for parents is when they go to an IEP meeting with their local school. And they will hear all the things that the child is struggling with or what they're not doing. And uh, we just, we just, you know, refuse to believe those things. We trust in what God's word said, and we, we trust in the report of the Lord. And that's, that's kind of what we leaned on, even though we are hearing a lot of ne- negative things. Tell us about your, uh, your life with your son uh, and autism and um, how you began to move in a direction that would, would assure that he would have a full, uh, productive and happy life. Well, families like mine and what we face, you'll face a a couple of different areas. One of the areas you'll face is, is, you know, how do you develop the child? And uh, most schools will tell you they're failing in two areas, at-risk kids and special needs. And the reason why they're failing with special needs is not because we don't have good teachers. There's just too many kids. You know, autism has grown over 300 percent. Uh, since the early 80s. So 10 years ago, it was one in 121. Now it was, now it's one in 68. And it, it, I, I heard another statistic that was going lower of kids are being diagnosed with autism. So most kids aren't being developed properly. And then another thing you face is just rejection from society in different ways. Uh, you know, when your child is different or, or, you know, people think that they're less. And so they view at times your child differently. And, you know, we, we've been asked, uh, you know, to leave a place just when Connor uh, was just getting excited and stuff like that. And mm-hmm. we faced different rejection there. And then, you know, churches, uh, nine, I would estimate 99% of churches don't have anything for special needs. So, you know, most of these churches don't have anything for, for children like mine. And what we were facing at home more than anything is when he stopped talking, uh, Connor just started having uh, terrible meltdowns because he knew he could speak at one time, but he couldn't say it anymore. And he would have these terrible meltdowns. I remember my, they got so bad that my wife one day, who's my hero, just said, I'm not sure I can take anymore. So that's a little bit of what, what we were dealing with and what, what families like mine deal with. Yeah. Well, three years after Connor lost his speech, your family received a miracle that you had been praying for. Tell our listeners about it. 
Yeah, I'll never forget, you know, after my wife said that, Connor was about five years old, and, and I was driving to work one day, and, and it was the most intimate conversation I ever had with God. I just asked him why. Not why we had our son, but why is he struggling so much, God? And I'll never forget what God said to me. He just said, Craig, your child is not a burden. Your child is a gift. And I said, God, I know what you mean. We love him. And he said it again, Craig, your child is not a burden. Your child is a gift. He said, you're looking at everything that's wrong with him. You're not looking at everything that's right. I said, God, I'm struggling right now. What are you saying to me? He said, Craig, I'm going to use your son to reach millions of people. And I've got to be honest with you, at that time, I just didn't see it. You know, even as a pastor and a man of faith, and I picked up a ball of, wa- ball of water. I said, God, my son can't even ask for a drink of water. How's he going to reach millions of people? And God just spoke to me four words that he'll speak to you when you're in the desert. He just said, do you trust me? And I didn't give him the pastoral answer. I just said, God, you're all we've got, but I trust you. And I thought things were going to get better, but actually things got worse. But about three months later, my wife came calling from the upstairs and she said, Craig, Craig, get up here. And I ran upstairs. She's crying. I said, what is it? She said, Craig, I was putting Connor to bed. I was reading him a couple books, and I began to pray for him. And all of a sudden, he began to speak. He began to say one word after another word, one sentence after another sentence. So tears started rolling down my cheeks. I said, what do you mean he began to speak? And you've got to understand, I, I haven't heard my son put together more than two words in three years. And she said he began to speak. So she walked me over to his bed, and she leaned over bed. She said, Connor, say it for mom and daddy. Say it again. And my little five-year-old boy lifted up his head and looked at us, and all of a sudden he began to speak, and he said, this is my Bible. I am what it says I am. I have what it says I have. I can do what it says I can do. Today, I will be taught the Word of God. I boldly confess. My mind is alert. My heart is receptive. I will never be the same. I'm about to receive the incorruptible, indestructible, ever-living seed of the Word of God. I'll never be the same in Jesus' name, and that was my son's first words, and it was a miracle. <laughs> wow. We're going to take a quick break, but we will continue our conversation. Again, we're talking about uh, the book Champion, How One Boy's Miraculous Journey Through Autism is Changing the World. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and we're continuing a conversation on the book, the new book, Champion, How One Boy's Miraculous Journey Through Autism is Changing the World, written by his, his father, who's also a pastor, Craig Johnson. It's written with transparency, some humor, and he shares the ups and downs of his family experience with autism, encourages readers to take hold of the hope and promises that God has for all of his children, including those with a diagnosis like autism. What a, what a beautiful story you were telling us just before the break about your son who whose words were so profound after a three-year period of uh, of utter uh, silence what did that do to the heart of you and your wife hearing your son recite those words at such a strategic moment well we right away knew it was god because a child with autism you know they they can they can say anything they could memorize a disney movie or or look at different things, but the, the fact that he spoke a spiritual declaration, we knew that was God, and it, it was it was so amazing. I mean, you know, we weren't doing the golf clap in, in our room; <laughs> we were jumping up and down and crying, and we couldn't believe it. And I remember the fall. Uh, three weeks later, I spoke on Wednesday night at our church, and I showed our church. I videotaped Connor saying his first words, and I showed our church and our church began to weep because they knew that was a miracle uh, that that God was using our son. Mm. 
Now, what have you learned about the character of God through this experience? Yeah, one of the, the biggest things that I've learned, you know, about the character of God is that He's faithful, you know, no matter what you're going through. And, you know, my, my favorite scripture is Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, you know, trust in the Lord with all your heart and mind, lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him, and He will direct your path. And, you know, I knew that to be true because I remember, you know, during that time where we were struggling, I just talked to God, and, you know, things actually got worse. I remember I couldn't pray elaborate prayers, but all I could say at times was, I trust you, or I'd say Jesus. And I found out with God that was enough. Mm. Well, after your uh, diagnosis, um, God opened your eyes to the tremendous need to serve special needs families in their church. And you developed a task force. And uh, nearly one year later, the Champions Club was born. Tell us a little bit about that process and um, about the Champions Club. Yeah, so I had a second conversation with God. I, I was I was walking through our church, and all of a sudden, um, God just stopped me near the children's area. And he said, Craig, look at what you're doing for typical kids. He said, it looks like Disneyland. He said, but look at what you're doing for special needs kids. And, you know, we were like a lot of other churches, but we had at least one room with some caring individuals. But God spoke to me and said, Craig, those kids deserve the very best, just like every other child. And he said, when you look in these kids' eyes, he says, who you're looking at, he said, you're looking at me, because when you do it in the least of these, you do it unto me. And favor will follow you when you begin to reach out these, to these kids and families, because I'm not going to let them be forgotten anymore. So I didn't really know what to do. We were, we were still walking through it with our son, but I knew how to pull together a task force. And I, I, I knew two things. One is it had to be so good that we would never turn away families, no matter how severe their kids were, because they faced rejection all the time. And number two, we had to come alongside the parents as much as the kids, because they were carrying the refrigerator on their back and they needed support systems. So we began to work on it, and I pulled together some medical doctors. I pulled together top educators. I pulled together the most important parents with special needs children. For an entire year, we worked on what would become the Champions Club, and it's a holistic approach, mind, body, soul, and spirit. So there's four stations, a physical therapy, a sensory, an education, and a spirit station. And when we opened it, we didn't know what it was going to be like and and how many people would come. But over 300 families came to the Champions Club in the first six months Mm. just because we opened it. Mm. Well, my understanding is today there are more than 65 Champions Clubs all across the world. And you're preparing now to launch Champions Academies. These are schools for special needs children. Tell us about that. Yeah, so when when it, it, it exploded our church, we started hearing from people uh, saying, we've got special needs kids, or we want to respond to this. And um, it started with one church in California, and we started to work with them. And we started to work with them from everything from a consultation to training to fundraising to, to uh, recruiting all the way to launch. And it just started to go from there. And now there are 65 Champions Clubs. There's, there are five in public schools. Uh, they're in orphanages. They're, there's one on every continent. Uh, there's one in a, in, in a home for homeless mothers with special needs children in Washington, D.C. And uh, we're just continuing to see the need grow, and we're responding to the need. And what's amazing is, is that it, it, it's, it's not just helping the, the kids. We're hearing that at home and in marriages, it's restoring homes and restoring marriages because this 
special needs can tear a marriage apart, but God's restoring them because the families are able to go to church and, and experience God. Mm. You write about five things special needs families need from the church. Can you quickly go through those so that churches who are thinking about how can we um, reach out to fam- uh, family in our church that, that have this and could benefit from this, this uh, approach? Yeah, you know, uh, the special one of the one of the big things that the special needs family it's it's number one they need love and acceptance. So many of these families uh, have been rejected in different ways, and, and most of them are shut in. So so they're not going to church right now, and they're not experiencing that. And their church is probably online right now. So that's one of the first things that they need is, is love and acceptance. Another thing that, that these families uh, need is they need to feel a part of the community. They, they need to, to, to move from that victim to that victor stage. And I, I say this all the time, you know, I, I say, um, you know, when you're going through a storm, the best thing you can do is be good to someone else because it gives you a different perspective of your storm. And we teach the families, we just say, say to them and teach the churches, teach them how to be good to someone else when they're going through their storm. And what it'll do, it'll give them a different perspective on their storm, and then they'll begin to help somebody else, and it moves them from victim to victor. And then we, we talk about uh, several other things that, that families need. They, they need to feel uh, like their child's being developed and that they're not just being babysat and that, that, that we're working with the children. So I, I can go on. <laughs> These are just a few of the things, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, you, you write that um, you are, uh, what, what's the phrase that you, um, that you have, that, that uh, this is not a, uh, this is not a, a cause, um, that autism and special needs are not your cause. So what is your cause? Yeah, you know, autism special needs are so big. Um, and, and you know what? I don't like autism. <laughs> so autism is not my cause. But Connor, the mm. children and teens and adults, they're my cause. You See, I think passion is more powerful when you put a name and a face to it. Mm-hmm. And see, I'll only go so far for special needs and autism. But for Connor, for kids like him, I'll go to the ends of the earth. And I challenged everybody, you know, when they're starting a champions club, don't, don't, don't make it around. Don't start around uh, a special needs ministry and make that your cause. Find a child, a family in your church and make them your cause and people will respond to it. Well, the book is uh, beautifully written. It's simply titled Champion, How One Boy's Miraculous Journey Through Autism is Changing the World. And it will help you recognize how you can champion uh, these children and young adults as well. Pastor Craig Johnson, thank you so much for talking with us today. It was an honor to be with you. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it very much. By the way, the book is published by Thomas Nelson, and Pastor Johnson is currently the Director of Ministries at Lakewood Church in Houston, Texas. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. Well, the headline read, China bans Bibles from online sellers like Amazon. Last week, apparently, Chinese uh, social media users, they started noticing that they couldn't find Bibles listed as some of their nation's most popular e-commerce platform, like Amazon. Shoppers who search for the word Bible on retailers 
uh, websites such as Taobao, uh, Jingdong, Dangdang, and Amazon.cn. They started receiving a no results uh, response reported. Uh, the South China Morning Post. Well, search analytics revealed a significant spike in the keyword Bible on the 30th of March. But by April the 1st, analytics, analytics rather showed zero, suggesting that the word may have been censored. Again, that's a report from the Australian Broadcasting Corporation. Now, some of you might remember, if you've been around long enough, that I had the privilege some years ago to travel with uh, the Bible League. And we carried Bibles into the People's Republic of China, which was... Uh, unlawful. And I have to admit, I'm no hero. I was terrified uh, at the prospect of being caught. We were told that uh, it was important that we not identify with any of our fellow travelers who had come with the Bible League uh, to China or some of the other countries we brought Bibles into as well. And we would be responsible for our own transportation home so that we wouldn't expose others who were there bringing Bibles in. So it was terrifying, the thought of having to try to, in the People's Republic of China, figure out how to get back home Uh, for uh, carrying Bibles in and being expelled. Well, again, I felt like something of a coward because I didn't at that time fully appreciate the cost uh, to those who had received those Bibles, members of the underground church that we later met with in private meetings. I remember uh, going to a um, house church meeting and we had the opportunity. Uh, the group was uh, was asked who would like to go to one of these underground church meetings. And I thought, you know, this is a once in a lifetime opportunity. I raised my hand and uh, I and one other person, if, if I recall correctly, were given that opportunity, but we were going to two different locations. So I was by myself traveling with Chinese believers in this clandestine effort to get from where we were at the hotel to where this meeting was taking place in this large complex of high-rise apartment buildings. And I remember hopping into one car and uh, words being exchanged in Mandarin and uh, encouraged to get out of the car and get into something else and then walking very quickly across the large courtyard where these high-rise buildings were, going into the uh, the apartment, uh, into a darkened uh, stairwell, racing up the stairs. I mean, you'd be in shape to keep up, racing up the stairwell well, where the lights were, were not on, a knock on a door, and we entered a room that was just filled with people. They were sitting on the couches, they were on the floor, they were everywhere. And it happened to correspond rather with some kind of um, uh, exercise where military outside were doing some exercise. They were preparing for some uh, show or, or some demonstration of their military power. So you could hear them marching outside in, in lockstep. Uh, preparing for these military exercises or uh, parade or whatever was going to happen. And, you know, I'm an American girl. I'm terrified. Here I am in a room full of Chinese believers uh, who faced real risk for being in that room, and they began to worship. And I have to tell you, these weren't men and women who were whispering they were singing aloud. And I'm thinking, we're going to be heard. We're going to be discovered. It was a, it was a frightening thing for me, the American coward. Um, I heard these young people stand up in, in their Mandarin tongue, which I did not understand, share their testimony, read the scriptures in full voice. They were not afraid. They were not concerned about what was happening uh, out of doors. And to see their passion and love for God as they fellowship together, I was a little bit ashamed of my cowardice and a little bit of a shame that I... Um, I was not more like them, but grateful they were not more like me. So this is a kind of a personal thing to me because I met with some ancient Chinese um, men and women who had longed for, prayed for, 
God's word. Sometimes they had a page or two and it was cherished. It was passed from one place to the other. So to find out that um, uh, China is making it more difficult once again for men and women to acquire copies of God's word, it it hurts my heart. Uh, Two days before the Bibles were banned from the online purchase, the Chinese government released a document outlining how it intends to promote Chinese Christianity over the next five years. According to the document, one of the government's key objectives is to reinterpret and retranslate the Bible in order to enhance Chinese-style Christianity and theology. One of the things I remember being told when I was there on one of a couple of occasions was that the parting of the Red Sea was important to the Chinese Communist government and uh, church leaders who were part of the uh, the three self church that was permitted by the government, not the underground church, uh, they would require that they would emphasize the parting of the Red Sea because they wanted to make a political point. Uh, and they had interpreted this in a way that was required uh, by those who were teaching uh, to to share with the people. The underground church didn't want to be overseen by the government, and they didn't want to be dictated to the Chinese style of Christianity and theology that we're hearing now the government is uh, is preparing to impose. The article goes on to say that among China's main religions, which include Buddhism, Taoism, Islam, and folk beliefs, Christianity is unique for having its holy text banned from commercial brick-and-mortar bookstores until the Internet Bibles uh, could only be obtained via church bookstores because they lacked a barcode, a reality that in the past has dissuaded house church Christians wary of official three self churches from purchasing the text at all. A joint venture between the Amity Foundation and United Bible Societies, Samity Printing Company is the only press in China allowed by the government to print Bibles. And I just wonder if it is the Bible as we know it, or if this is a version that is more, as they put it, a Chinese style Christianity and theology. Um, all of that to say that, um, The challenge for believers in the People's Republic of China continue, and yet the church is growing there at a a significantly rapid rate. Uh, One other thing I'll mention, legal Bibles are not in short uh, supply. The Red Guards confiscated Bibles so that after the Cultural Revolution, the most pressing need of Christians in China was for Bibles. A decade of illegal Bible smuggling met part of the need, but uh, it put Christians in the difficult position of supporting an illegal activity. After three years of negotiations, the Amity Press was able able to begin printing Bibles legally, but again, for underground church members, there's a challenge in acquiring them because you, in a sense, expose yourself uh, to government scrutiny and perhaps even worse. Hmm. Well, just wanted to uh, to mention that once again, uh, believers in other parts of the world uh, suffer hardship for simply following Christ, for naming the name of Jesus as their Lord and Savior. I hope we have the same kind of backbone here for standing up over the coffee table at work at the uh, cooler and just uh, being willing to share something of our faith, even if it uh, might be a bit uncomfortable or challenging uh, at times. Well, taking a quick look at uh, this week on the Georgine Rice Show, Tony Evans will be my guest tomorrow. Looking forward to that. Of course, his program is heard here on KPDQ. His latest book, Your Comeback, Your Past Doesn't Have to Determine Your Future. The book is published by Harvest House. He's been uh, here in the Portland area not that long ago at one of our pastor appreciation events. So we're looking forward to welcoming him back in uh, his capacity as a guest on the program. That's coming up tomorrow. On Wednesday, Joshua Chatraw will be my guest. The book is titled Apologetics at the Cross, an introduction for Christian witness. So for those of us who are serious about sharing our faith, this is another tool that might help us to do that effectively. 
and uh, perhaps more efficiently as well. Joshua Chatra will be my guest. On uh, Friday, we're going to lighten up and just uh, have a bit of fun, and we're still working on our guest for Thursday. So keep your ears open for more details on that later in the week. Uh, the countdown is on for the concert featuring Stephen Curtis Chapman. He's going to be in solo uh, concert that's uh, going to be very intimate. That's coming up on Thursday, April 26th. It's an amazing night with one of Christian music's most enduring artists. That will be at East Hill Church, 7 o'clock p.m., April 26th. Tickets are still available. Go to kpdq.com to acquire yours. And finally, I want to remind you that a Christian education for your child is possible. KPDQ listeners can save up to 40 percent on Christian school tuition. And we are encouraging you to take advantage of the opportunity to enjoy some discounts. Go to listenersavings.com for more information. We have savings on some tuitions for up to 40%. So check that out and see if uh, one of these schools is what you are looking for. Again, that's listenersavings.com. Want to thank Clark Hilton for engineering today's program, James Blend for producing, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.